I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. What is happening? We are into the month of November. Unbelievably, it seems like just yesterday, we kicked off the year 2018 here on the Wong Takes, and... It is coming to a close. The date is November 5th, November 6th, 2018, otherwise known as election night in America. So usually when I'm recording this, I'm watching some sports, but tonight I'm watching some election coverage because, you know, um, the future of the country, as with any election, is at stake. Um, and we ought to be paying close attention to what's going on uh, as far as the midterm elections. Democrats looking. Okay, no, this is not a politics podcast. <laughs> this is a sports podcast. Um, also, uh, for what it's worth, this is episode 69, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, uh, we've got a football-centered show planned today, uh, kind of as per usual when it comes to this time of year. Just a little preview of what we got. We've got college football, we've got the NFL, and then we've got a few other topics. One of them related to football, one of them not, and I'll see if I'll be able to get to them today if I'll have time. Um, but we're going to start off this week's coverage on the Wong Takes with College Football Week 10. Uh, we're really getting into the heart uh, of college football. This is when the races uh, for championships uh, game and co- conference spots are decided. This is when people uh, really state their case to be in the college football playoff or uh, fall out of the college football playoff contention, although that can happen at any time. It really happens this these last couple of weeks. And so let's get started. Full disclosure, we are always a fan of full disclosure here on the Wong Takes. I thought the college football playoff rankings would come out at 4 p.m. like they did, or 4 p.m. Pacific time, uh, where I'm located as they did last week, and we'd be able to talk and analyze them here on the show. But as it turns out, because of the State Farm Champions Classic and the start of the college basketball season, by the way, my only real takes on the college basketball season are that Duke is going to be a force getting the top three recruits, including the one and only Zion Williamson, who my friend has actually met. Um, but beyond that... Um, Anyway, I presume that they would be out, but because of the Safe Room Champions Classic, the ranking show got moved to 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, hence we are not able to discuss them. But nonetheless, that will not deter us. We will still talk about the week in college football. Um, there were plenty of games to talk about in college football week 10, and most of them involved, uh, or the ones that we will talk about, involve ranked teams. And we're going to start, uh, we're going to go in order of what I think were the best games. Uh, and so we're going to start out with... Uh, well, well, not necessarily what I think were the best games, because as you're about to see, that's not necessarily true. What I thought were the most important games. And so we're going to start with number one, Alabama, and number three, LSU. This was probably the most hype matchup coming into the weekend, because it's between the number one team in the country and the number three team in the country. The Alabama Crimson Tide have looked unstoppable uh, with their offense behind Tua Tungavailoa and their defense, which is great as always. Um, and then number three, LSU, coming in uh, with big wins in within the division that people didn't expect them to get. Um, that helped catapult them to number three seed. And the real question coming into this was, how good is Alabama? Because obviously, um, we want to know about LSU, but to some extent, LSU already demonst- had already demonstrated what they could do, beating Georgia, beating Mississippi State, um, and the question was, Alabama's defense up to this point had been against not very good teams, uh, only one ranked team in Texas A&M. And so 
we got a humongous answer here because Alabama dominated LSU in Baton Rouge in Death Valley, 29 to nothing. Alabama, their dominance have dem- has demonstrated that it's not a fluke. I mean, they are a legitimately dominant team and a team that really no one looks to be able to compete with at the moment. I mean, first let's go over the offensive end. I mean, for LSU to hold Alabama to 29 points is actually kind of an accomplishment. I mean, if you look at the way Alabama has been scoring uh, over this season, 51, 57, 62, 45, 56, 65, 39, 58, holding Alabama to scoring four touchdowns was a pretty big accomplishment considering how well two has been playing, considering how well uh, their backs and Damian and Najee Harris have been playing. Um, but, but ultimately, Alabama has always had a great defense. And the question has been, Alabama always has this great defense. What if they had a really great offense? And we're getting that answer. And that is 100% domination, um, no question about it. I mean, just take a look at the stats. The total yards disparity is remarkable. Alabama had 576 total yards of offense, and LSU had 196, fewer than 200 yards of offense. Alabama just about tripled LSU's offensive output. Also in the rushing game, Alabama's front seven was dominant, only giving up 12 rush yards on 25 attempts. That's half a rush, or half a yard per rush. Meanwhile, Alabama had 37 for 281 for an average of 7.6 yards per rush, which I still think might be below their season average. But it's still, um, for Alabama's defense to be that strong, there's not really a test that's like LSU left on their schedule. I mean, Auburn is sitting at 6-3, and three, um, and that's probably all they've got, and besides Georgia and the SEC Championship game, obviously. But with this Alabama defense, and the Georgia offense has been questionable at times, um, and so I think Georgia's going to have a tough time scoring against Alabama, and Alabama has to be the heavy favorite um, playing in Atlanta in the SEC Championship uh, in the SEC championship game. And it's too bad LSU's season is ending because uh, this was a good team and they beat quality opponents. And we, I guess for non-SEC fans, it's a good thing because the SEC getting two teams into the college football playoff uh, again for the second straight year after having an all-SEC college football final last year uh, might sound horrible. Um, But LSU had a great run led by Coach O. And they still have a shot to get into a good bowl game. And I guess that's a one little thing they could take away from this. So I could talk about Big Ten probably for longer than the SEC because the Big Ten seems like a, a happy medium kind of between the defensively dominated SEC, which can, I'll admit, get kind of dull at times because, you know, I, I, I'm not super involved into one team. And then there's the Big 12, which scores 500 bajillion points a game and, and ends up turning into kind of a shootout. The Big 10 kind of seems like, you know, you're more NFL-style scores. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, we saw an Alabama-esque performance for Michigan, number 5 Michigan, uh, last Saturday, beating number 14 Penn State by the whopping score of 42-7. to um, And I think the big story about this game was the Michigan defense. The Michigan defense locked down. Uh, They forced, how many turnovers did they force? Uh, They forced three turnovers from Penn State, one fumble and two interceptions, including a pick six. Uh, This is an incredibly explosive defense, I think, ahead of everything else. They showed that on the pick six. Um, But just getting to the quarterback, locking down in the secondary, this Michigan defense really is a force to be contended with, a force to be reckoned with. 
And a defense is really what can lead you to championship. I mean, look at the formula for Alabama. It's been have a good defense and a good enough offense. And they've won five national championships the last 12 years. If Michigan can get their defense led by like Chase Winovich um, and, those, and those folks, if this defense can lead, this defense can lead them to the promised land. This is a good enough defense. Um, and Shea Patterson um, was very good in, in this game as well. Um, he was good enough. 11 for 17 for 144 yards and no picks, most importantly. Um, but the rushing attack for Michigan with 259 yards was also really important. And for Michigan, the question for this Michigan team coming into the season was, how are they going to hold up in the rivalry games? How are they going to hold up in the Big Ten matchups? Because when you're in the Big Ten, you know that basically every year you're going to have a slate, at least in, in, in the moment, at the moment. You're going to have a slate of good matchups. You're going to get Michigan State. Uh, you're going to get Ohio State. You're going to get Penn State. Um, you're going to get... There's one team I'm missing. Uh, you're going to get Wisconsin. Um, and then Northwestern is no fluke. So, I mean, how could Michigan stack up in these games? I mean, we knew this, their schedule coming in was going to be brutal. They had a stretch of Wisconsin, Michigan State, and Penn State back-to-back-to-back. And I think I reiterated that at the start of the year. And they passed with flying colors. They beat Wisconsin 38-13. to They beat Michigan State 21-7. to And they beat Penn State 42-7. to and that means they now have a little bit of a reprieve with Rutgers and Indiana, both games they should win and cover, really. Um, and then followed by Ohio State to cap off the year. So this is a, a statement win for Michigan to cap off this stretch and say we are for real. Because I don't think anyone believed this Michigan team um, was going to have a legit shot at making the playoff unless they ran the table in these three games. Um, and, and their initial loss to Notre Dame made that even more necessary for them to – they had to run the table, and they did. Also, I thought it was funny that the student section was mocking Penn State um, at the end uh, by saying, I think they were saying, we are Penn State, you know, the traditional uh, Penn State chant. I thought that was pretty funny. And also, um, worth noting, the Penn State offense hasn't been as potent this year, obviously, without Saquon Barkley. Um, but they still have Trace McSorley, and, and it's very significant to almost shut out this Penn State team. I mean, this game wasn't even as close as the score looked. It, was, it looked like it was going to be a shutout for the longest time until uh, Penn State scored at the very end. Um, and like I said, Michigan's completing their revenge tour here, beating all these good teams. And this matchup with Ohio State is going to be really fun um, at the end of the year. I'm really looking forward to it. Unfortunately, it's at 9 a.m., which means I- I'm probably going to end up recording it and coming home and watching it later. Uh, but eh, I- I've come up with the whole system for not um, finding out the score of a game that I record. And uh, finally, the last game of the weekend that was significant, number six, Georgia, and number nine, Kentucky. Surprise, number nine, Kentucky. Um, and I'm going to admit, I'm not as knowledgeable about like Kentucky and the dynamics of the SEC as I might be about other conferences, so I might be relying on my notes a little bit more than usual for this type of uh, one, but I can still tell you what's going on. So Kentucky, while they have been winning and they have won enough to get them to the number nine ranking, They've been, at least in recent weeks, relying on their defense to win. They scored 14 points against Texas A&M, which was actually a loss, uh, 14 points against Vanderbilt, and 15 points against Missouri. And those offensive struggles caught up to them in this game because 17 points is still more than the last three games, but is not enough to keep up with Georgia. Um, and Kentucky started to come alive at the end, but digging a 28-3 hole against yourself is not good unless you're the New England Patriots, cough, cough. Um, but what Georgia did is that Jake Fromm has not been, is not a Heisman candidate. He's not the top quarterback in the league, but uh, or in in the conference. But Georgia's rushing attack is what set them apart in this game. They had two hundred yard backs, uh, DeAndre Swift, um, and I forgot his first name, Holyfield. I think he's a Vanderson, um, but and including an an eighty three yard run from DeAndre Swift. DeAndre Swift last year was super explosive. 
Um, and that's what I remember about him. And it's the same deal. Uh, this breakaway speed turning on the Jets um, is pretty remarkable. And that's what George is going to rely on come playoff or come crunch time, come playoff time, come SEC championship time. And it's huge that this rushing attack made it so they don't have to rely on Jake Fromm um, and they don't have to get a, a masterful performance out of their quarterback to win these games because this is still a tough SEC team. Um, and not having and only having Jake Fromm throw 113 yards passing, kind of similar to Shea Patterson's performance in the Michigan game, um, they're going to have to get from better at some point, but at the moment they can hang on um, and just walk into the SEC title game. Um, and that is the most important thing that comes out of this game because with Georgia having the one loss and sitting in the sixth seed at the moment, they're going to need some kind of, unless one of the teams in front of them trips up, um, which, you know, it might happen, but you, I don't want to count on, you don't want to count on it. George is going to need this statement win in an SEC championship game, especially if they face Alabama, um, which is probably going to happen at this point. Or no, that is going to happen at this point. Sorry, that is going to happen at this point. So they will get a chance to play Alabama, um, and that gives them an opportunity to make the playoff if they're on the bubble. And also their their last real other test besides that is Auburn at home, but they should be able to win that game, although I'd put them on upset alert uh, just because of the nature of the SEC um, and, and how that turns out. So I'm really excited uh, to watch the end of the college football season. I mean, Notre Dame has been a team uh, that is in the college football playoff rankings, um, and so they will they have an inside track. Although what's interesting is that their schedule is not very strong. I don't know. Putting, I guess putting Notre Dame that high is deserved given the competition that they've played and just finishing off Northwestern. Uh, ah, I dropped my phone. Uh, finishing off Northwestern last week. Um, but their schedule isn't particularly strong coming up. And so that means that Notre Dame almost, unless they lose to Florida State, Syracuse, or USC, Notre Dame has secured a playoff berth. And Alabama, I, I think it's safe to say they've secured a playoff berth. Clemson's schedule... <laughs> is not exactly the strongest uh, either. I mean, they just beat, uh, who was, who did they beat? They beat someone 77-16, to 16, Louisville. They beat Louisville by 61 points. They sit in the two seed, and their remaining schedule is Boston College, Duke, and South Carolina. So, I mean, there aren't many teams that are looking to slip up. Now that LSU's fallen, Michigan will probably leap into the top four. So Georgia's going to need some kind of statement win and have Michigan lose to Ohio State is probably the most likely scenario. In the, or maybe um, Notre Dame losing to Syracuse, although in one lost Notre Dame team versus a one lost Georgia team. I don't know. It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to the wire. But uh, I'm really excited going into week 11 of college football. So, next topic, NFL Week 9. I didn't get too much time to watch the NFL this weekend, so it's, this, this talk, conversation might be a little shorter than usual. Um, but still... Um, I'm going to start out with, because I think that's what interests most of my listeners, at least, I don't know, I don't really know the demographics of my listenership, but uh, however limited it may be. But let's talk about the Battle of the Bay. 34-3, the 49ers beat Oakland. I don't know what it is about the 49ers. Last year, Jimmy Garoppolo came in in week 11 and took the world by storm, winning six, uh, the Niners' last six games, giving himself uh, that starting role. And then he gets hurt for the year. In comes C.J. Beathard. C.J. Beathard, again, for the second time, is now playing the end of the season out. Uh, and now here comes this Mullins guy. 
Nick Mullins out of Missouri State. Missouri State throws 16 for 22, 262 yards, and three touchdowns. Three touchdowns for Nick Mullins. He's taken over the Jimmy G role. If Nick Mullins comes in, because Jimmy G's off the rest of the year, if Nick Mullins comes in and wins five out of six, or four out of six, five out of, they have nine games left, uh, four out of seven, five out of seven, six out of seven, seven out of seven, what's next? Do you trade Nick Mullins away? Do you pawn him off for some more, uh, more players? Do you get another running? Do you get another running back? Well, the McKinnon's back. Do you get a wide? Do you build uh, your linebacking core? What do you do? I mean, you have a lot of assets if you get Nick Mullins to the point where he looks like a Case Keenum type or a Brock Osweiler type, a franchise-style quarterback. Because quarterbacks are always scarce in the NFL. A quarterback that another team looks like they can build around. Um, so this, this, if Nick Mullins does well, it's pretty much a win-win for the Niners. I mean, you either have two really good quarterbacks or you can get some. Uh, get some assets from him. Uh, next was the biggest matchup. Uh, next is the biggest matchup of the week: the Saints and the Rams. Uh, coming in, this was a matchup between the eight and O Rams uh, and the best team in the league uh, at that point, and then the six and one Saints, who had to that point kind of been a little under the radar team. I mean, after losing their first game to the uh, Fitzmagic's in, down in Tampa Bay. They had won six in a row, make it now seven in a row after they beat the Rams 45-35. to Both offenses in this game came to play, and I think that's what we expected. I mean, the Rams' defense bolstered itself over the last week, but this Saints offense with the double whammy of Ingram and Kamara and Breeze and Michael Thomas, I mean, just take a look. 483 yards of offense for the Rams, 487 yards of offense for the Saints. A lot of it was in the air this time, though, with the Rams having 391 yards passing and the Saints having 346 yards passing. Todd Gurley was actually relatively bottled up in this game, um, which which might be a formula for success is stack box, make sure he doesn't get any uh, running lanes. Um, but I'm particularly impressed with the Saints and how they hung in there, especially after the Rams came back from a 35-17 deficit uh, to tie the game up. I'm impressed with how they were able to keep their composure, and that's what you want from a championship team, is you want a team that, can handle adversity, um, but the Rams, because this looks like, this all right here looked like a possible playoff preview, like an NFC Championship preview, um, because these two teams are good enough to do that, and they're in separate divisions, obviously, um, and so the Rams are going to really want that home field from the Saints, and that means they're going to need the Saints to trip up, or they're going to have to keep on, and they're going to have to keep on winning, um, because the Saints are really something else at home. I mean, the crowd behind them, uh, and the offense just turned on under under those lights. I mean, just look at their last couple of home games. They scored 45 against the Rams and 43 against the Redskins. I mean, this is opponent offense no matter where they are, but at home, this is really strong. And that's what the Rams are going to be hoping they can get home field. All right, next game was the game that was advertised as the game between the two GOATs, between uh, Tom Brady and the New England Patriots, and Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers. And somehow, at the age of, what is it, 41 now? Tom Brady is still Tom Brady. And the narrative the narrative is the same as it has been the last couple of years. The Packers can hang with the Patriots. They were tied 17-17 in the fourth quarter. But they don't have enough to finish them off. The Patriots ended up winning this game 31-17. to um, I think one story that we can really take away from this is that Josh Gordon 
is adding another dimension to this New England offense. And that's, he's adding another speed guy. Uh, they're throwing deep to him. He had an explosive touchdown at the end of the game. Josh Jordan is doing what was, to some extent, expected of him in New England. I mean, they have high expectations there. What, what people expected was that he has the talent. You take away the drugs, he's an explosive guy. And that's what they got out of him. Also, James White has quietly one of, been one of the best running backs this year, uh, especially out of the backfield. Um, and then I think the Patriots' creativity was really interesting in this game. Uh, with a little double pass, throw it back to Edelman. Edelman throws it over to James White, and it's a screen. Um, that's, what, that's what James White can do. I mean, Sonny Michelle's hurt, uh, obviously, but, but James White is the pass-catching back that is prevalent in today's NFL, where you have a guy who can not only run it out of the backfield, but can run routes, do a little, get you seven, eight yards just out of the backfield, and has the, has the I guess, shiftiness uh, to be able to make guys miss and make something out of nothing. And in the NFL, that's really what you want. You want something out of nothing. Um, I guess some other things, other headlines out of the NFL this week. The Houston Texans have won six in a row uh, after starting out the year 0-3 with DeAndre Hopkins becoming a primary weapon once again. And that's good to see. I mean, he hurt me in fantasy a few years ago, but I'll always root for him. Uh, he's a, he's a, he's a uh, very talented receiver. Are you scoring, I think, six touchdowns on the year. The Bears are tied for first in the NFC North with the Minnesota Vikings, not the Packers, interestingly enough, um, with their defense really carrying the day, uh, spearheaded by Khalil Mack, who was actually missing from the last game, but they still put up 29 fantasy points, I think. Um, and also the Pittsburgh Steelers are back atop the AFC North with the Le'Veon Bell saga continuing, but James Conner has made this a really feel-good story. Not only all the cancer, uh, him fighting cancer and beating it, but really winning that locker room uh, and not making it about Le'Veon. And, and he's, he's kind of been a good win all around uh, for, for the Steelers because he is simultaneously performing at a Le'Veon-esque level while not, uh, while not excluding Le'Veon or saying anything bad about him. Um, that's just a PR awesomeness um, for the Steel City. Next topic is going to be a quick take of sorts, but if you weren't uh, up on the case, uh, a few months ago, Maryland head coach DJ Durkin was under fire because uh, an offensive or a lineman, Jordan McNair, suffered a heat stroke um, and didn't get medical attention and subsequently died. Um, and Durkin was put on leave while the university, uh, or I think an independent, uh, someone went through an investigation about the case. And more or less what happened was there was a bunch of arguing back and forth between the board of trustees and the administration. And eventually, at first, Maryland decided that they were going to retain Durkin. Uh, and then there was a whole backlash, and uh, eventually they ended up firing Durkin. But this is such a bad look for Maryland because it's a lose-lose, really. Once you say you are going to bring DJ Durkin back into your program, in one situation, you have players walking out of meetings and people not participating uh, in the program, and especially recruits don't want to come to the program. This probably would, would have been the biggest long-term impact um, is having people not want to come to Maryland. But now that you fire him, now you look weak. Now you look like you bent in the face of public opinion. Now, even though in the end of the day, at the end of the day, you did what everyone determines is the right thing. The fact that it's such a bad look that you initially said, we will retain DJ Durkin, 
is something that you're not going to be able to wipe away from your program for a little while now. Um, and that's that's ultimately what I took out of this whole DJ Durkin case. And that's just a little a little quick thing uh, coming at you on the Wong takes uh, on this Tuesday. And finally, our second quick thing before we get on to the actual quick take. Uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee has begun proceedings to revoke USA Gymnastics status of the as the official governing body of the sport in the United States. That's courtesy of Ben Fisher's Sports Business Journal yesterday on Twitter. Um, so this is pretty significant because with the whole uh, USA gym. Oh yeah, and let me read this uh, quote from uh, U.S. Olympic Committee CEO Sarah Hirschland says that today the United States Olympic Committee has filed a complaint initiating a Section 8 proceeding against USA Gymnastics seeking to revoke USA Gymnastics recognition as a member national governing body of the United States Olympic Committee. This more or less says the USA Gymnastics, as it is currently constructed, is no longer running um, the United States, is no longer running U.S. Gymnastics in the Olympics-wise. And this is pretty significant because of coming off the Larry Nassar case and the sexual harassment and all the powerful statements that have been made by women who have been, say they've been harassed and have been harassed by Larry Nassar. This is a big move to more or less say we are going to burn it all down and start from scratch because we had systemic issues that we could not nip in the butt uh, individually and get to a point where it was tolerable. And so it's necessary to burn it all down, but it's really hard to do. But uh, Fisher said in Twitter comments that nothing has been done to a sport of this magnitude, especially by the USOC. It was done to Taekwondo, I think is what he said uh, a while ago, but no, no, nothing to a sport of this high um, that receives this much recognition, this much funding. Um, and so this is kind of an example of what you need to do to cause institutionalized uh, to cause institutionalized change, um, and that's what uh, USA Gymnastics was or U.S. Olympic Committee was able to do by revoking uh, USA Gymnastics status as the official governing body of the sport in the United States. And I think that's a good change, um, and that's something I hope that the USA or that gymnastics as a sport can develop further. Quick take coming at ya on the podcast, on the long takes. LaMelo Ball is returning to high school. Holy moly, he is going to Spire Institute in Geneva, Ohio for his senior year of high school. And I think that means leaving the JBA. Yeah, I think LaVar saw this, we talked about a few weeks ago, rip the JBA. Or I think we did, did we? Rip the JBA because of the new G League system where players can make money. And I think LaVar understands that. He, he might be bombastic and a little loud. A little rash, but he is kind of shrewd. And he understands that Lamelo's the road to the pros is not going to run through the JBA anymore, like he would have envisioned in his wildest dreams. And so having Leangelo, sorry, Leangelo uh, entering the NBA G League playing pool, uh, according to Shams Charania of uh, Stadium in the Athletic, having that again, is going to help Leangelo actually get into the pros and work with people who are actually trying to be, or actually going to be pros, maybe, if he can make the player pool, although he I doubt he will. But it's a start. And then Lamo actually, now that his college eligibility has been revoked, um, it's kind of an interesting decision to go back to high school. But I think uh, they're starting to understand that having an institution where you can play basketball, where it's more regulated, um, and, and probably even better competition is a better environment than what the JBA was giving his sons. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a smart decision from LeVar to keep to put them back in the situation, especially with the new changes to the uh, to the G League.
Thank you so much for listening to the Wong Takes. Do everything. Bit.ly slash the Wong Takes, the Wong Takes at gmail.com, patreon.com slash the Wong Takes, and questions and voicemails. Uh, you can get your name on the podcast uh, in the description, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Check out the podcast on iTunes and Google Play and rate it and hit that subscribe button. Smash that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week.